You're listening to the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey, a leading multi-platform audio content and entertainment company. Listen on the Odyssey app. For Beyond Profit, a podcast of the ANA Center for Brand Purpose, I'm Ken Bolio. Climate change, poverty, inequality, water scarcity, food insecurity, The list of unsolved problems and emergencies in the world today is alarmingly long. And while there are no easy solutions, burying our heads in the sand to these dangerous trends will only exacerbate the issues. In her book, The Solutionists, How Businesses Can Fix the Future, author Solitaire Townsend calls on entrepreneurs, CEOs, activists, and other leaders to take personal ownership of the crises plaguing the planet and society, especially climate change. In doing so, she writes, business can create transformative change worth trillions of dollars while driving innovation and growth. Moreover, she argues, by fixing the harms that progress unleashed will kickstart a solutions revolution that will propel human well-being, equity, and experience to a future worth living in. A sustainability expert, TED speaker, and Forbes blogger, Soli co-founded the international change agency Futera, where she serves as Chief Solutionist. She joins me to discuss her book, which includes a treasure trove of strategies, exercises, and stories on sustainable disruption. Soli, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ken. It's lovely to be here. So I want to start, as I mentioned at the top, you are Chief Solutionist at Butera. So talk about your particular approach when you're working with clients that want to seek meaningful change. So um, I love that as an opening question, because trying to find people who are seeking meaningful change is my job and then helping them to do so. And I say people, not organizations, actually, because organizations are just an organization of individuals. They actually have no attitudes or beliefs of, of it. It's the individuals within those organizations who have that desire and drive for change. Now, sometimes in some of the organizations we work with, with some of the clients, you know, maybe the organizations who were established and founded to change the world, you find that everybody in that organization has that feeling. In other large multinationals, big global brands, perhaps it's there's a group who want change and there's a group who don't understand the need for change yet. And so what we do is we find those individuals and we work with them in two ways. One we call logic and the other we call magic. So logic is to identify what needs to change? What are the problems that need to be solved? And what role can your organization have? What's the material difference that you can make? So, for example, if I'm talking to a Netflix, whilst I do care about the footprint that Netflix might have, data centers, their offices, whether they're recycling their coffee cups, what I actually care about more is the impact of their storytelling. Mm-hmm. Whereas if I'm working with with a large cement company, for example, whilst I do care about the food that they serve in their canteens, what the contribution they can make is to actually decarbonize cement. And so the logic is identifying what is the big material measurable difference that you can make with your organization in a way that de- delivers value for your company. And then the magic is the storytelling, the human truth, the engagement internally and externally that's going to get that done. Now, if you just do the logic without the magic, you're going to have a fantastic strategy that no one ever does. 
<laughs> and it will sit in a PowerPoint on your desktop forever after. But of course, if you just do the magic, if you just talk about this kind of stuff, then bluntly, it's greenwash. So that's why we do both together. So as I mentioned, uh, the problems in the world today just keep piling up. So are people reach more actively reaching out to you or are you reaching out to them? So I've co-founded Futera um, over 20 years ago. And back then, we were like the weird kids on the block trying to do the sustainability and purpose stuff. Most people hadn't even heard of sustainability, let alone trying to bring climate change into the mix. And we were considered to be relative kooks in terms of trying to pull off a business that could do that. 20 years later, I'm a friggin' genius. It's like now everybody wants to talk about it. And what we find as Futero is we get to now choose and pick who we work with and who we don't. And when I said earlier, this is all about the individuals, it's not organizations that come to us. It's people. It's people inside those organizations who have realized that there's a huge opportunity or a huge risk, that there's problems, there's needs that their organization can serve. And those people come to us. And often the very first thing that we do before we do any strategy or any communication or any amazing work that's going to change the world, we'll train folks up inside that organization. We call it our academy and we'll train hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of people inside that organization up on what these things mean. Because if you've got a small group of amazing, passionate, committed people inside the organization, but they ain't bringing everybody else with them, then nothing's going to change. And so sometimes the very first job is to convince everybody else that they want to do that. So yeah, 20 years ago, I was knocking on doors. 20 years later, people are knocking on mine. So these folks you call the solutionists, in the name of your book. So what attributes and attitudes do they embody? A solutionist is someone who wants to solve problems. And of course, you at the, at the opening at the top of this explained those problems. Like there are a set of problems in the world right now that needs solving. And that's what solutionists are there to do. The solutionists that I've interviewed for my book from CEOs of Ikea and chief sustainability officers at ABM Bev and Google and uh, founders and startup leaders at Who Gives a Crap and Oatly and even folks like Bill Gates. When I was interviewing them, a certain set of attributes emerged that they all have in common. And I go into all five of them in my book, and I'll just I'll just touch on a couple on this call. So one is a real sense of vision. They have a very, very, very clear idea of what they're trying to achieve. And that can often be quite a long term vision in terms of transforming a category, transforming an industry, creating something that doesn't exist yet. Very, very, very clear vision of what they're trying to achieve. But a second attribute is they're incredibly flexible about how they get there. They will chop and change and change their mind and admit defeat and admit failure and then work on something else because the means are not important. Only the ends are. A couple of other attributes that I found with them is that um, they're, they're fun, they're optimistic, they're positive, they're enthusiastic people. And these are people who work every day on how bad things are. You know, these are the people who can tell you in great detail exactly what's wrong with the world. But they are overall some of the most optimistic and positive people that I've met. What I love about your book solely is that, you know, you talk about incremental changes versus boiling the ocean. And I think that's really important that it's like sort of the stepped approach and not something you have to solve in a month. <laughs> yeah. And I, I of, often people come to me who have sort of caught the sustainability bug or have recently realized that they, you know, if they're not part of the solution, maybe they're part of the problem, they've got to get going. And they, they want to solve climate change tomorrow. They're like, what do I do? How, 
you know, how, 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 do, how do I how do I pull those parts from within carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? You know, have I got a two year plan to get that done? And what I tell them is that this is this is a marathon we've got to run at the speed of a squint. And if you're going to do that, then eat that elephant one bite at a time. Work out what your very next step is and do it and what your very next step is and do it because it the chance of overwhelm the danger of being actually just drowning in the problems and the challenges um, and of course we all live in a world today that people haven't lived in before we turn on our screens and we see viscerally the problems that there are around the world we're not just reading newspapers we're not just listening to the radio we're not just hearing gossip or, or reports of things which have happened five years later we're watching them live online which no no other generation has ever had to deal with and so sometimes we can be frozen in the headlights of these problems and even though we want to do something nothing feels worth doing and what i always say is worrying isn't doing and just do something do something do one thing today get started kind of break that seal do something and then you'll be able to build up and build up and build up until eventually when you look back down the pathway, you did make an exponential change. You did do a great deal, but you did it one step at a time. In your book, you contend that solutionists fall in one or more categories, architects, accelerators and actioners. So what are the core strengths of each of these groups and why must they work in lockstep? This was such an important revelation when I was interviewing people because I have the same bias that everyone has of thinking that most people are like me. <laughs> and so when I started interviewing these folks and who had done these incredible things, who had set up companies to buy a, a real estate in order to um, uh, for underprivileged groups to be able to access them, people who were um, inventing entirely new business models of how you're going to sell, I found that they kept the change makers, these solutionists came in three flavors. Now the architects, I am an architect. I am the architect. <laughs> Big picture thinking, thinking at the highest possible, you know, 30,000 feet, the million feet level, the James Webb telescope level of view <laughs> of the universe. Liking to put things together in unusual combinations, find insights by lateral thinking that hadn't been done before and basically strategize. I love to think about a big strategy. And when you're thinking at that level, at that really big level of strategy, this is what we need for sustainability. We definitely need big, new, innovative strategies. We've got to replan how things are done. The problem for architects is that we're very good at making everything sound desperately important because our big strategies are, but we're also very good at making every tiny step to sound that, to get there, that sound like life or death. So we're terrible, terrible at micromanaging. The architects really, really, really need to work with the other end of the spectrum, which is actioners. Actioners are the people who are going, I love the strategy. That's absolutely great. What do we do? I want to act. I want to take action. I want to do something. I want to decide. I want to make things happen. I want to hit the phones. I want to call people up. I want to book things. I want to change things. I want to invent things. I want to create things. Actioners are completer finishers who get their sense of achievement, not by having a big breakthrough thought, by doing a big breakthrough thing. And actioners are desperately needed in sustainability because we've got a lot of things we've got to do. We've got to change. We've got to pick up the phone. We've got to make a decision. We've got to change it, change a problem. We've got to make things happen. The challenge for actioners is that doing nothing is worse than doing the wrong thing. 
So for an actioner, if they're not working with a great architect who knows what the plan is, actioners can keep doing and doing and doing and doing, even if they've gone from doing the right thing to doing the wrong thing, because they just can't bear to stop doing. So you can immediately see how those groups absolutely rely on each other. If you're more of an architect, wow, surround yourself with actioners who are going to like pluck that plan out of your hands and go and make it happen because that's not your strength and if you're an actioner someone who is really good at delivering an absolute complete finisher make sure you're working with an architect who's going to guarantee to you that the things you're doing are the right things to make a difference mm -hmm. because they've sat there and noodled over it and obsessed over the strategy now those are two groups then there's a third and this third emerged as i was talking to people and as i was going through the interviews you know hours and hours and hours of interviews with incredible people and the accelerators emerge a little bit later than the architects and the actioners for me, because the accelerators are people, people. Accelerators are the folks who draw teams together. They're the folks who enthuse people about doing this. They care about whether the people who are working on these projects actually are getting what they need. They build fantastic teams. Crucially, they give permission to folks to have this conversation because they're people people, because they're good at drawing groups together, because they're good at holding people within space. They're the folks who make it possible to talk about climate change inside an organization because they're the folks that everyone talks to. Now, the accelerators actually tend not to think about themselves as sustainability change makers. And that's a real pity because they're not doing these big strategies and setting these big targets. And because they're not out there actually building the wind turbines or making stuff happen, they they don't regard themselves as being someone who can make a big difference on sustainability. But I actually think they are arguably the most important group because we have got a huge number of people we've got to bring with us. We have got to recruit into this change process almost everybody on the planet, let alone most businesses, most people who are working, most um, uh, most consumers. And that's what accelerators can do. They accelerate everything which the architects and actioners are doing by thinking about the human aspect, the people aspect. Are people happy? Are they excited? Are they challenged? Are they scared? Are they motivated to take this action? And they make sure that the team is in the right place to do it. Mm -hmm. So most of us have got a little bit of what maybe more than one of these maybe we're a bit of an architect accelerator or an action architect but there's usually one type that we're not at all what i would say is have a bit of a reflection about yourself have a little bit of a reflection about your team maybe even have a little bit of reflection about the folks that you work with in your supply chain your clients whatever it might be and get a sense of whether you've got a good balance there and in my experience of decades of working with organizations who are committed to sustainability it's often the accelerators that they're missing and which is why we sometimes suck when we try to convince people to come along with us because the architects say this is the big logical plan and strategy why we should do something and then think that's going to be good enough to convince people the actioners are like here's the to-do list all the actions we've got to take i think that's going to convince people and the accelerators are the ones who kind of going okay what's in it for folks like how's this going to make them feel is this going to deliver something for them as an individual like what do they need what support do they need to make this happen and so please, if you're an accelerator, come on into sustainability. We need you. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, Soli, um, the importance of being flexible. Why is that skill set something that every solutionist must learn? Because we get stuff wrong. <laughs> and over my career, I have made mistakes and many, many, many mistakes in terms of how I'm trying to achieve my goal. And if you are not the kind of person who can flex 
and move and jump to a different way of doing things, you're going to get stuck in a rut and wonder why nothing is changing. And I give you an example. Um, I'm old enough to remember when carbon offsetting was a really good idea. Like way, way back when it's like, great. Yeah. Polluter pays. Absolutely. That's what we should be doing. This was a breakthrough thought. Governments were doing it. Can we get businesses to do the same? Can we get a massive capital flow towards nature? William. Then, of course, certain where I am now, I'm like, what were we thinking? <laughs> this idea that somehow it was OK to give permission to people to keep um, uh, polluting with carbon. It's like this is a zero sum game when it comes to climate change. Like we just got to stop it going up there. There's no way to offset it. And so that's that's a change of mind. That's a change of insight. That's a deeper, more rich understanding of how this situation works. And I've got a whole long list of those over my career. And so flexibility, people can struggle with flexibility because it means admitting we weren't right. It means doing something new and actually stopping what you're comfortable doing and trying something out. It brings it comes with risk. But if you keep your goal in mind, what you're trying to achieve over time, what your big, hairy, audacious idea is that you're trying to reach, then flexibility in how you get there becomes much easier. You give yourself permission to say, yeah, that's not working anymore. Let's do something else. Mm -hmm. And again, if you've got some great accelerators around you, they make it okay for everybody else to do the same. Well, risk at times can lead to failure, but you point out in your book that that's actually a good thing. It's the only way to find true success. So how does an organization get over the fear of failure? We all fail all the time. That's one of the things just about every company constantly fails. If we didn't, we would be, well, we wouldn't be human. Like, you know, to, we are we are inherently fallible people. And so, of course, we fail. One of the things that uh, is wrapped up in failure tends to be a sense of shame. And companies and individuals can feel a great deal of shame if they don't manage to achieve something. What that means inside organizations is that permission to fail can be lacking. And organizations can sometimes have this sense that you have to constantly prove success even if bluntly that's a bit of a stretch and the thing that you did over the last quarter didn't quite make it, you've got to sort of dress it up as a success. The problem with that is that you never learn. And we only learn through failing. Every little child learns to walk by falling a bum a lot. Like we learn to write by misspelling words. We, we learn through failure because we learn what not to do as well as what to do. So solutionists tend to focus on the fact that we can't fail on our big outcome, we can't fail on solving poverty, we can't fail on managing and reducing climate change, but we can fail a lot on the things which we try. And what I always say to people is turn everything you do in your mind into an experiment. Everything is an experiment. Even things which you've done for the whole of your career, start thinking of them as an experiment, then you can review whether they actually are working or not, or whether you'll just keep doing them because you've always done them. If every single thing you do is an experiment, it feels much less risky for an experiment to fail because you were never promising that it would work in the first place. You were testing and trialing. And in sustainability, we have got to test and trial because if we had all the answers, we would have already have done them. Hello, Beyond Profit listener. Since 1982, the ANA Nonprofit Federation has led the way in providing the professional education, peer networking, and trusted guidance that nonprofits need to advance their missions and grow giving. We understand the critical impact nonprofits have in the world 
in the challenges they face across the sector. The ANA Nonprofit Federation has your back so you can move forward. Learn how by visiting ana.net slash beyondnonprofit. And now, back to the show. I am speaking today with Soli Townsend, author of The Solutionist. Soli, you ask solutionists to specialize in a full-stack solution to problems like climate change. Hoping you can describe what you mean by full-stack and why it's so critically important. So I uh, stole the term full-stack from coders um, who think about when you're actually trying to build a website or build a solution, they think about all the different levels in terms of all the different uh, pieces of code that need to come into this stack. If in sustainability you are too narrowly focused on what you're trying to solve, you've got a problem. So, for example, if you are trying to solve climate change by creating solar panels, but some of the rare earths, the coal town, et cetera, that need to go into those uh, solar panels are being mined by children in the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, that's a failure. That's a problem. That's not a full stack solution. The best solutions, the ones which are sustainable over time, are the ones where you are thinking about the environmental impact, the social impact, the economic impact, you put in that full stack to make sure that you are sustainable in all ways. Now, this can be hard because it's a lot to keep in your head. It's like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And it's almost impossible to get all of it right. But if you step back from what you're doing and go, is everybody who's involved in every point of this production actually going to benefit from it? Then chances are it will survive and it will thrive and it will grow. If, however, I'm in danger of unintended consequences, if I'm in danger of solving a social issue in a way that undermines the environment, that just means I'm building another social problem. If I'm trying to solve the environment in a way that undermines society, then chances are that's going to lead to another environmental problem because degraded societies um, uh, degrade the environment. So you have to think about this full stack. And the more you do it, and the more that you review it and the more you think about it, the better you get at it. So just start thinking in this full stack way, getting out of silos, not thinking about these things as you know ESG or social sustainability over here and environmental sustainability over there. Think about how you are actually solving these problems as one. Well. And what we find is that when you start doing that, you start finding that there are incredible uh, win-wins and double benefits. And we see this, solar power being a perfect example. You know, I've been to places in the Himalayas, I've been to places in Sub-Saharan Africa, they're never going to get a coal power station. They're never going to get lights on. They're never going to be able to work in the evening. Their children aren't going to be able to um, do schoolwork. They, the spaces are going to remain dark. The only way to bring electricity to those areas is solar power. So here we've got automatically a full stack solution, particularly if we're thinking about um, how to empower women uh, in that process. And I've talked to some fantastic um, uh, folks who are doing that around the world. That's a full stack solution. And when you start looking for those win-wins, you'll find a lot of them. And you'll also find some places where maybe you don't have a win-win and you're going to have to fix it. Because the process is long and it can be difficult, is that why you see organizations dropping the ball and leading, and that leads to charges of greenwashing, et cetera. They just can't seem to continue to, you know, build the momentum of their sustainability efforts. 
we see that and we see stuff sometimes come in waves of people become very focused on it then it then it goes away it comes back goes away we almost have never seen anyone actually ever drop sustainability they sometimes are running from one thing to another thing to another one and, and usually if a company isn't maintaining their sustainability that they've already made commitments on it's a very very bad sign for the competence and governance inside that organization because if they've dropped that then what else have they dropped Greenwash, almost all of the greenwash, the vast majority of greenwash that I come across is a mistake rather than malicious. There is malicious greenwash. There are people and organisations deliberately attempting to mislead us on what they're doing. But the vast majority of it is marketing teams getting over enthusiastic about something that's good about their product. And it feels good to them and they can talk to their kids about it and it's a pride point and so they want to tell the world about it without necessarily understanding that perhaps there's other parts of the business that haven't actually stepped up to that level or perhaps even the attribute that they're trying to communicate isn't as great as they think it is so we sit we see that quite a lot and what i am beginning to see of course with the gen z's entering the work market with the millennials beginning to hit leadership positions is you've got folks who in many ways have been trained to be able to think about this full stack trained to be able to think about sustainability who didn't take sustainability as an elective when they were at business school where it's actually part of what of what they trained for and there's a competence there that perhaps leaders who where this has all been a relatively recent part of their career and you know one of the folks I work with is LinkedIn and LinkedIn has done a very big review online of executive roles that are advertised on LinkedIn in the UK they found that up to a third of executive executive roles that have been advertised require sustainability skills so i think what we're beginning to see is a lock-in to sustainability being a way in which organizations operate because the people working in and leading those organizations have sustainability locked in this is what i mean it all comes back to the solutionists rather than organizations being the solution it's the people inside organizations who are taking the decisions the people who are listening to this podcast they're the people who are going to bring the solutions, not sort of some embodied organization that doesn't actually exist. You write in your book, Sully, that solutionists must become storytellers because a great solution without a story simply won't sell. I love that. So what are the key ingredients of a great story that will drive change? So storytelling is so central to how we're going to get this. Um, and for far, far, far too long, both in terms of businesses and nonprofits and policymakers, they've all basically just been trying to sell on the science of going, hey, look, this is look at the percentage better, look at the percentage reduction, look at how much better this product is in terms of the facts and stats and not bringing the story in. Human beings are made of stories. In fact, um, the evidence shows that if we, someone's offered a fact versus an anecdote they are more likely to believe the anecdote than the fact and we all know that like you know if we if we've researched the new car we want to buy if we've looked online if we've done all the comparisons if we've decided that we're going to get a particular type of ev and we've spent weeks making our decision and then at work around the water cooler someone who we don't even like that much tells us that their brother's cousin discovered that the maintenance costs on that car are incredibly high even though you've done all of your research you're not going to buy the car. All the evidence shows that the anecdote will trump it. So that's why we have to become good storytellers. And stories are innately human. So you've got to tell a story of people, not of organizations. Tell us That's why in The Solutionists, I, t I tell the stories of all these individuals and how they went about making change in their organization. So one, 
stories are about individuals, not about organizations. If it's an organization, it's a case study. If it's an individual, it's a story. Secondly, our stories have got to be around the benefits to people. You can't just, a story can't be around how what you're doing has bought better price points, how what you're doing is bringing sustainability advantages. It's got to be around what's in it for me. One of the things I always tell people who are trying to live a sustainable lifestyle, um, who are trying to eat differently, travel differently, buy differently, manage their homes differently, is don't tell people what you did, what you did, tell people what it did for you. So are you happier? Are you sleeping better? Do you have more time? Are you healthier? Have you got a slimmer waistline? How has this lifestyle benefited you as an individual? So one, it's all about individuals. Second, the story has all got to be about benefits. And thirdly, stories are about journeys, not outcomes. Mm. You know, it's not about the last page where you find out who done it in the Agatha Christie novel. It's all about the journey of getting there. And so particularly with businesses, I say, stop telling me your claims. Stop claiming. Stop telling me your journey, because I know you're not perfect on sustainability. Nobody is. So use social media. Use all of these fantastic new tools that we have to show me how you're getting there. Let me in. That's such a great point. I'm hoping you can share a couple of examples of successful solutionists at transformative organizations. Oh, I interviewed so, so, so many. One of my favorites is a young woman called Vaita. So Vaita is one of the co-founders and leaders of Anapta, which is a green hydrogen organization. And Vaita, like so many of the solutionists that I interviewed, had a moment when she traveled from her home city around Asia. She had her first experience of pollution, air pollution, when she was when she was in her teens. She hadn't grown up in that environment. Something dropped for her. And she was like, right, this is not a world I'm prepared to live in. This is not something which I want I want to happen. And so she looked for solutions. She tried things. They didn't work out. There's in the, in the book, there's a lot of stories of people trying things that are not working out. And she 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 managed to find this solution of, of green hydrogen. And then like so many solutionists, she has become not just an advocate for her brand and her business, which is now growing internationally, but also for her solution. As an individual, she is now speaking up on this worldwide. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got the CEO of IKEA. So this is the CEO of one of the biggest organizations that we have, you know, not somebody who grew up thinking about sustainability, not someone who was a born solutionist, but who had experiences in, in his case, of being put in a role, in an international role, where he had no experience of being able to manage in that role. And so failing repeatedly and seeing the impact that his decisions had in, he was he was placed in a country where a significant portion of the population experienced great poverty, seeing the impacts of his decisions on the people around him. Or even perhaps the CEO of Orsted. Orsted is a massive uh, company that used to be an oil and gas company, is now a renewables company. And he used to head up marketing for Lego very, very focused on sales points and what happens and where's where's the next market share. And he received letters from people for whom Lego has changed their lives and people who had got through mental health issues, whose children were autistic and communicated through use of Lego. And that really woke him up to the difference that he could make. So solutionists are made, they're not just born. And so many of the people that I interviewed, even sometimes quite late career, even sometimes in their 60s, suddenly had this moment of realizing that within this one beautiful precious life that they have that they can actually generate change and they don't have to suddenly become an activist or like 
glue themselves to something in order to do stuff. They can do it through their workplace and they can be incredibly successful and they can make a very big difference in the world around them. And part of me wonders who on earth doesn't want to do that? Who doesn't want to want to be successful and leave a positive legacy? And it just takes a bit of courage. So lastly, Soli, what are some of the traps that solutionists need to be made aware of right from the get-go? So say you are you know, making a decision that in your career, you want a career that is going to serve society as well as kind of being a great career for you. The very first trap that people fall into as a solutionist is overwhelm. Like, what am I, am I going to do about this universe of problems? And you get a lot of folks who become martyrs, who identify that something needs doing and that they try to make themselves do it in, in a way that they think is going to have the biggest possible impact. Whereas actually the trick is to do something that you enjoy. Almost all people who have made a big difference in the world have used their gifts to do so their gift might be persuasion their gift might be strategy their gift might be being a people person their gift might be being able to get things done if you try to go against the grain of your gifts of the way in which you perform best of what brings you joy and if you try to do something which you think should be done rather than something which you want to have done you're going to burn out so that's the very very first thing which i say to solutionists is write down a list of things which would make you happy, give you a kick, be something you'd want to talk to other people about doing, be something which you'd want to take home and talk to your kids about doing because you're, they're so exciting. Do that list, not the list of things which you think should happen in the world, the thing, list of things you want to make happen in the world. Another big thing around solutionists is not balancing out your gifts with the gifts of those around you. I The the very focus of solutionists is around you and the difference you can make, but it's also a lot about the team and the team that you need to build around you, the team that you need to be part of, and that that nobody can do this on their own. Like I am part of an extraordinary team at Futera and the Futerans are who I dedicate the book to. And I get to be the face of that. I get to speak on platforms. I get to come on amazing podcasts, but actually it's the team, it's the few talents who achieve everything which we do with our business. So don't get overwhelmed, do what makes you happy and work with other people who are passionate and excited about doing the same thing. And if you do that, you're going to have an impactful and fantastic career. What a great way to end. Soli Townsend, thank you so much for joining me at Beyond Profit. Oh, Ken, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. To learn more about the great work of Futera, please visit wearefutera.com. That's wearefutera.com. And if you'd like to recommend a topic or a guest for this podcast, please email me at brandpurpose at ana.net. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the ANA Podcast Network, powered by Odyssey.